What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? We got Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I've got Paul and Cole with us here today at Gene Blueprint. They're going to dive into the weeds about how genetics plays into the role of, you know, performance and nutrition. How y'all doing today? Doing great, doing great, Robert. Thanks for having us on. Uh, Absolutely. So just yeah, just uh, I'm gonna kind of just play ignorant here, and uh, you know, there's a lot we don't we probably don't even know what we don't know about genetics, but uh, I'd love to to get as much info as possible. So if y'all just want to kind of dive in and talk about uh, the science behind it, I'm all ears. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, Gene Blueprint, what we are, we're a direct to consumer genetic testing company with a focus on fitness and nutrition. So we're really looking at the genetic factors that influence the way you metabolize certain foods, respond to certain exercises, uh, vitamins, and other environmental factors such as what time you're more likely to uh, be more um, alert throughout the day. So morningness, so you're more of a morning person or an evening person. So um, based on your genetics, we can actually determine those factors and we recommend um, certain exercises and certain foods for um, clients to use to get the best out of their diet and just improve their overall wellness. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and how long have y'all been doing this now with uh, Gene Blueprint? So uh, I think we've been doing it about, uh, the product's been in development for about two years now. Um, we recently just started actually selling in uh, January. So currently right now you can go on our website, www.geneblueprint.com and purchase a kit online. Um, it's a simple mouse swab. So um, basically the way the process works is you purchase it online, it gets sent to your house. Um, you do the mouse swab, send it back to our lab, and we're based out of Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. So then within four to six weeks, your results appear on an online portal. Now your results being um, your response to the foods, the exercise, and all those other good things, along with a 30-day workout plan and a meal plan. So currently right now you can purchase that online, but the product's really been in development for about two years. We've been really trying to get the most accurate science out there. And that's what really what separates us from a lot of the other genetic testing companies on the market right now is the accuracy behind our genetic prediction scores. Yeah, I'd love to kind of go into detail about that because prior to talking to y'all, I hadn't heard about Gene Blueprint. I think at least in the states here, everybody's you know heard of Twenty uh, Three and Me. Um, that's kind of probably the, the more common one here. So how do you compare with with Twenty Three and Me? Like, what's what's the differences there? Yeah, yeah. So uh, what really makes us different and unique is that we like to focus on. Um, lifestyle genetics, what we like to call it. So things that you can actually make a lifestyle intervention and kind of change. And it's it's nice to know what your genetics say about, um, let's say, your height or your eye color, um, those certain things that 23andMe would be able to tell you about. But the things that we're trying to kind of dive into are things that you can actually make lifestyle interventions to kind of improve your all, overall well-being. Now, that's the kind of the, the difference at face value. When we really dive into the science behind all this, though, um, we're definitely a lot different. So most genetic testing companies, they do what's called single gene reporting. So they'll look at one single gene out of your entire genome. We have about like 20,000 different genes. So they'll say one gene predicts one trait, one trait being, let's say, um, carbohydrate tolerance, for instance. So that's what most companies do. They look at a single gene. And based on your uh, variation of that gene, they can determine if you're really good at metabolizing carbohydrates or maybe not so good. Now, what makes Gene Blueprint really unique is that we have this proprietary machine learning algorithm that allows us to look, to look at uh, thousands of different genes 
And we can look at all those different variants in those genes and come up with a way more accurate prediction of your carbohydrate tolerance or whatever the trait is. Because what science has really told us in the last few years is that it's really not just one single gene that kind of determines your trait. It's kind of a mixture. There's a whole bunch of different pathways interacting within your body. So we really want to capture um, the variation between people within those pathways. So we just want to look at as many genes as possible to get a more accurate prediction. So that's what kind of makes Gene Blueprint unique from a science standpoint. Yeah, Robert. Uh, Robert, Paul here. And I was just, just to further build off of uh, what Cole was mentioning was, you know, there's really a couple – couple of differentiators from us in, let's say, a 23andMe, which is a household name in the United States. There's one we look specifically at lifestyle genetics, predominantly fitness, nutrition, vitamins. Um, and we want to be able to empower people with the information to make better lifestyle decisions based off of what they now know about themselves, about owning their own personal information. And then further to that, when we look at calculating a genetic prediction score – Really, the recommendation can only be as powerful, as accurate as the prediction is. So you have to be pretty sure that, you know, your genetic prediction score is, is, spot, is spot on accurate. And there's really four pillars that go into determining why we have the most predictive genetic prediction scores uh, available. Is predominantly, we use this polygenic model. And as Cole was mentioning, that that human characteristics are not single trait dependent. Uh, they are really the inter interplay of hundreds of thousands of genetic variants that will determine uh, a human characteristic, something like height or somebody's strength. Um, and further to that, we look at this machine learning, this machine learning, when you're using this amount of data and hundreds of thousands of genetic variants, there's, there's, there's a high level of computational power that, that needs to be incorporated. And then further to that, where we've really uh, kind of flexed our, our, our muscles, uh, we look at uh, ethnic diversity amongst different groups. So rather than looking at the world's population as a whole and taking an average of the world's population, we're able to dive into each uh, each ethnicity uh, because there are certain certain genetic profiles that are more prevalent amongst certain ethnic groups. What's uh, that, that, that's very fascinating. What, what are some like overarching themes that you see within certain gene- uh, certain you know um, heritages and whatnot? So um, one of our traits that we look at is uh, alcohol sensitivity. So um, what we find is that within Asian cultures, they tend to have the genetic variant that's responsible for um, what's called alcohol flushing. So when they drink alcohol, they tend to get really red in the face and they kind of feel the effects of alcohol a lot more quickly. Now, this certain variant is really predominant in Asian cultures. That's just what the science has told us. So that's just one example of how ethnic diversity kind of plays a role here. Yeah. There's also one of the ones that we even looked at very first score was adaptation to high altitude. Um, and unless you were born in the Tibetan region, most people will struggle when training at high altitude and adjusting to the uh, climate. That's kind of like a Darwin thing there. Like they've been living at such a high altitude for so many years, their genes have kind of, kind of uh, favored that sort of environment. So they're really good at adapting to a high altitude as opposed to um, most common people throughout the world, when they go up to the mountains, they kind of feel um, a bit more fatigued. They have a harder time um, getting oxygen to their muscles. Yeah. 
And Robert, that's probably even a, a better segue into the fact that every human characteristic, there's an environmental component, and then there's a, there's a heritability component. Uh, the general rule of thumb is 50% environment, 50% genetics. But when we look at something like a score that we, we looked at would be strength. Um, strength is, you know, 20 to 30% genetic and it's highly trainable. So you could have the best genetics in the world, but if you're a couch potato uh, and you don't train, you're just not going to be all that all that strong. Uh, and then individuals who just outperform uh, typically tend to be a byproduct of their uh, byproduct of their environment and their training. I'm sure you see it in your in your industry all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think according to my test, I was like not supposed to be a bodybuilder or something like that. Well, you had a high you had a high strength score, but you know we have that in Canada. We use this this phrase called like farm tough. People yep. are just just born strong. I like it. I like it. I mean, that's a technical term, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, super technical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Farm tough. Yep. So what's a um, let's let's talk a little bit about the nutrition. So like from a a nutritional standpoint, how how do you determine because um, I know on on y'all's end of the of the dashboard you have a little bit more data than I do on my end. Because um, I don't have the hereditability uh, ratio, right? That's right. <clears throat> what What are some of those? Um, like like my my audience would be you know fascinated by anything dealing with you know nutrition or supplementation or training. So what what are some of the uh, like hereditability factors for for those uh, those pillars? Sure. So for um, just off the top of my head, fat tolerance is 33% heritable. Um, carbohydrate tolerance is 48% heritable. Um, those are just a few of the ones off the top of my head that I can really think of. Um, the heritability really ranges. I mean, it will be hard to find something that's over about 60% for a nutrition score that we offer. And just so your audience knows what we're actually looking at here. So um, in terms of nutrition, we're looking at carbohydrate tolerance, fat tolerance, lactose sensitivity, caffeine sensitivity, alcohol, B vitamin response, omega-3 response, and vitamin D response. So um, based off of the carbohydrate tolerance and the fat tolerance, we can kind of uh, predict an ideal macronutrient breakdown for each user and kind of uh, tailor the workout or the meal plan based off of that. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so so that's that's an interesting concept, Robert, because you probably see meal plans and nutrition programs all the time, and they're all, you know, we're trying to get away from this one-size-fits-all to something a little more personalized, uh, you know, uh, instead of being reactive, we're trying to be a little more proactive in, in, in what we're in what in what the recommendations are. So for the most part, most nutrition programs that you, you'll see out there are pretty much the wheel. There's proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, and it's a percentage balance between that. What we really want to do is look at an individual overlap an individual's genetics and play with those numbers that are ideal to that individual's genetic underpinning. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, with regards to like a ketogenic diet, because um, because you know ketogenic diet's kind of totally different. You know, opposite end of the spectrum as you know a standard American diet. Does that uh, kind of skew the numbers from the heritability uh, you know ratio at all? Yeah, I would I, I would say 
it's we're playing on the very extremes uh, of both ends. So ketogenic being predominantly uh, the most extreme low carb diet, and then <clears throat> if you start looking at individuals that may not react well to fats, sort of say, uh, you really are limited to going outside of your uh, macronutrient profile. Right. Because like with mine, I don't have it memorized, but I believe I scored really, uh, I should be really carb sensitive and be able to handle carbs pretty well. And then I was very, uh, not, not likely to handle fat very well, but then I've kind of turned that on its head and, and yep. become fat adapted. But I wondered if, if being, you know, in a ketogenic state and being fat adapted kind of like throws those variability numbers kind of out the window. Yeah. So just looking at your results, Robert, you're a little bit of an outlier in the sense that you didn't tolerate carbohydrates very well and you, and even less to that extent tolerated fats. So you have this opportunity for a well-balanced diet. And keep in mind, most of our nutrition programs are based around what would be the standard food guide, whether it be Canadian food guide, United States food guide. So a meal program would typically not exceed, you know, 55% carbohydrates to begin with, and it wouldn't go below 25%. So when we start talking about ketogenic, you know, you'd be looking at really in the, in the five, the five, five percent range. I would, I would, I would assume that that's probably what you're in. Yeah. It's uh, definitely the opposite of the spectrum for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, um, now that you mentioned it, what's the difference between like the, the American and the Canadian food guide? Is there, is there much variance there? Yeah, no, there's typically not much. There's not, there's not much difference. It's all, it's, it's, they're pretty much very, very closely matched. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so kind of looking, I've got, I've got the dashboard pulled up here now. So I've got, uh, you know, they get the nutri- the training, nutrition, and the vitamin, and then the environment uh, perspective. So like, Let's just let's just run through some of these from a hypothetical standpoint, you know, so it'd be kind of practical. Um, what what are some like? I'm sure y'all run this test on yourselves. What are some things that that stood out for your for you as an individual, and how'd you kind of correct course with it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, for your hit response, it seems like you're a really like high responder to high intensity interval training. So um, compared to most people, you'll have more of a benefit in terms of. Uh, performance gains and um, losing weight if you were to follow high intensity interval training so for someone like me for instance if I were to I'm, I'm a low responder to hit but if I was a high responder to hit I'd probably start um, shortening my breaks between sets in the gym not necessarily doing a full full-on style hit training regime but I would just kind of um, shorten the breaks between my between my sets and get it going that way now for your bone and joint health um, we can see here that you are pretty high. So there's not, there, you have really good bones and joints. The bone health is bone mineral density. So you have a, you have pretty dense bones. So you're not really um, too prone to risk of fracture and joint health. I mean, you have pretty thick uh, cartilage thickness based on your genetics. Now um, for your power, I'm not too sure. Are you, are you uh, high, medium or low for that one? Uh, let me see here. I want to say I was low. So my score, yeah, it was low. Yeah, yeah, no worries. So, um, yeah, so basically what you would probably want to do is more of a strength style uh, workout instead of more power exercises if you want to try to increase uh, gains in the gym. 
uh, it seems here that you have a 79 out of 100 for the strength. So that that's pretty that's pretty high. You know, that's that farm tough we were talking about a bit earlier. And um, yeah, yeah. When we looked at the power score, really, we're looking at your uh, fast twitch to slow twitch muscle fiber uh, distribution, and you have more slow slow twitch muscle fibers than fast twitch muscle fiber. Uh, so really, the fast twitch muscle fibers is kind of what gives people this explosiveness. Um, but you were mentioning earlier that you know you weren't designed to be, you weren't genetically designed to be uh, a power uh, a weightlifter or, or a bodybuilder and whatnot. And it's just an interesting it's just an interesting comment, and we get that all the time, Rob. Just because there's not really a good or bad genetic score. Your goal will always remain the same. We we just like to overlap your genetics with what your goal is to help people achieve their goal. So we don't steer people away from certain life goals or, or anything like that. We just help people take the information and the talents that they had and best apply them to what you're doing. So when I uh, like I'm looking at your picture here, and you look pretty massive. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Your, 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 you know, your arms could use a little more. Volume, just, just joking. <laughs> I need the bicep curls a bit more with those slow twitch muscle fibers. Stop mind, you'd be making fun of me. <laughs> but but, I, but what I'm getting at is you are definitely, and it ties into what I was mentioning about. There's the heritability factor and the environment factor. You know, you have taken. You are definitely a byproduct of your environment, of your training, your sleep patterns, your nutrition to be able to achieve that level of a, of a physique. That's for sure. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, what what are the the factors for the power and strength, the the heritability factors? Um, I can just take a look at that right now. I know I know strength we were mentioning earlier is is pretty low between twenty and thirty. Yeah, between twenty and thirty for strength. So, strength is one of those ones where it can actually be we can actually train and you can have intervention. And I, I always use I like to use the massive extremes and say, okay, you could be the strongest, most powerful person in the entire world, have the best genetic profile in the world. But if you just are a couch potato and are not active, you will never, you'll never be able to achieve versus someone who has weak genetics, but trains and, and, and builds muscle would, would outperform. Right. Uh, and just being a byproduct of your environment. But there are certain mechanisms that we can help people sort of say, take shortcuts to getting to their goals. If they know what they're, what their genetic scores are. So, for example, um, you know your your endurance score was was nine. And I don't know if you what what has been your have you ever had experience with like German volume training or anything like of that nature? Yeah, I've done some of that, and I used to actually run uh, distance training. I used to actually run track before I got into bodybuilding. Oh, nice. And and you were doing sprints or long distance. It was all it was all long distance. I I wouldn't. Wouldn't a sprinter? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. So, by the sounds of it, I mean, nine. So, what we're looking at for endurance, it's um, hemoglobin levels. So, your blood's ability to bind to oxygen. So, just that baseline, you have lower hemoglobin levels based on your genetics. So, you might have a bit of a harder, you might have lower baseline endurance than most. But, like, it plays back to that heritability factor, right, Paul? Like, you can always out train your genetics. And the heritability factor for endurance is, is pretty low as well. It's about 30%. So, yeah. It's very very interesting. I mean, and as far as like the, the fast twitch muscle fibers 
and and me being lower ranked on that that probably explains why I can't jump very high, right? Uh, well, <laughs> that, that <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that explosiveness that I was that I was mentioning. Really trying to get from a short distance. Uh, in you know we that's typically the gene that we looked at for that was a gene called. Uh, ACT and three, and that's typically been coined as the sprinter gene. And if you had a certain copy of that, you, you know you had a pro you had a high, you had a high probability of being powerful. But if it's any consolation, Robert, uh, I have a CC copy of that, and I can't jump that high either. <laughs> oh, we're just doing something wrong, I guess. I, but that, that's the one that the Africans usually score really high in, right? I would be genetically blessed, but. My basketball game's not on point. <laughs> mine either, for mine either. We're hockey players up here. Yep. <laughs> hockey it is. Um, well, let's, let's dive into the nutrition uh, side a little bit here. So alcohol sensitivity, um, I scored, we'll just kind of go through all these here. I, I scored low on that, um, which would mean that I wouldn't be able to handle my liquor very well, right? No, it actually means that you would be able to handle your liquor pretty well. Oh, so, really? Yeah, the low, low score for that, it's uh, alcohol sensitivity, so you're not very sensitive to the effects of alcohol. And what that's really um, describing is the, the flushing, the alcohol flushing, you know, like the redness in the face that some people get after just a single drink of alcohol if they have this uh, certain genetic variant. You don't get a buzz very easily, yeah. Robert. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, well, since, since I don't have any water weight because I don't have any glycogen to, to stop the the alcohol sinking in, I, I get buzzed pretty quickly, but I think uh, that's more because I don't have the carbs. Yeah. But it's probably yeah. a good thing I don't drink that much anyways. There you're, you go. You're a cheap date. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and then look at the caffeine here. So I, I've, I've been known to take in a pretty good amount of caffeine. So I scored a 53, so kind of middle of the road, um, which would indicate I don't really have a sensitivity or a, a resistance to it, right? Yeah, yeah, you're just pretty much baseline average at metabolizing caffeine. So someone that's really sensitive to caffeine, um, the effects of a single cup of coffee could last them all day. Like myself, like one cup of coffee in the morning, I'm good to go for the whole day because I've scored like a 99 out of 100 on that. So I don't really um, get the caffeine out of my sensitive too quickly. It kind of just stays in my system all day long. And that what, that's what that's kind of describing, the caffeine sensitivity. Yeah, Robert, this one's a little interesting because some people like to supplement their workouts with a, a, a caffeine and really the timing around when they take the caffeine is where we can actually play with it and execute this into real life. So somebody who was a slow metabolizer of caffeine could probably have a cup of coffee and then get ready, shower, go to the gym. Talk to the talk to the people at the gym, and then get into their workout, and their calf and the caffeine would still be effective. But somebody who was a fast metabolizer, the half life of that caffeine would be would be reduced. So they would have to take that caffeine almost, let's say, immediately upon entering the gym, so they could have the the, the benefit of caffeine if it was something that they were using as supplementation. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. And there's, I mean, everybody takes caffeine. It's a uh... Do you know anything about like the when when at at what point do the adrenals start you know shutting down and and basically just clogging all those adrenal glands so that you have to kind of do a cleanse of caffeine basically? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, we haven't really done too much research into that, but I've kind of I've kind of heard things about how you should be kind of cycling with caffeine, maybe once every few months, kind of take like a week break or something like that. If you were like a user, like a daily user of it, it's probably about time I do that. I drink way too much coffee. And and that's that's another environment. So that's the environmental. That's the environment too. Right. Eventually, you know, gene expression and how much caffeine we expose ourselves to, that there's going to be an immunity level to some of these uh, some of these elements. Right, right, building up a tolerance and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let's j dive into the, the carbs here. So I scored 29 out of 100, and, and what does that indicate? So what the carbohydrate tolerance score is really looking at is um, levels of glycated hemoglobin. So... Um, when you break down glucose, um, hemoglobin is kind of a transfer or uh, transporter for that. So it's really your bud's ability to bind to the to the glucose, and that's what glycated hemoglobin is. So um, someone with a really high tolerance for um, carbohydrates would have lower levels of glycated hemoglobin, which means that they, the um, the glucose is getting effectively transported to the muscles, and vice versa for someone with a really low carbohydrate tolerance score. So um, for you, you have 30 out of 100, so that means that you're not as tolerant to carbohydrates, so that means that you would have slightly elevated levels of glycated hemoglobin. Gotcha. So you're not getting the, the most out of um, a carb high-carbohydrate diet. It's just kind of staying in your bloodstream, all the sugar you're ingesting from that. So just from a genetic standpoint, and not looking at the environmental factors, with me scoring a 29 on that and then a 4 out of 100 on the fat, Genetically speaking, I should probably be consuming most of my macros from protein or so, right? Um, yeah, so the way the way our ratio kind of works is that someone with a low carb and a low fat would kind of have more of a balanced diet because it's kind of hard to recommend to somebody like a high protein diet and just get most of their energy from protein. I mean, we know that you have to have carbohydrates and fats, one or the other, for your main source of energy. So we really don't want to just tell someone, hey, eat steak all the time. You're good to go. We just kind of want to balance it out. I'd be okay with eating steak all the time. Yeah. yeah. So your, your profile would line up to have the most well-balanced diet. But I don't know. You, you don't get the nickname Keto Savage. Yeah. Like, so, Rob, maybe you can kind of give us a little bit, uh, even your listeners, about you know what your daily diet would look, your nutrition program would look like in the morning, breakfast, lunch, and then dinner. So, so for like what I'm eating currently. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so I I've done quite a bit of experimentation with the macronutrient ratios, and I tend to operate uh, best at about eighty percent, uh, a minimum of about eighty percent fat. Uh, so most of my calories coming from fat. Um, like currently I'm doing a little bit higher protein just as an experiment, uh, mm -hmm. but my fat is still around 250 grams. But yeah, anytime I get above 80% fat, I notice much, much more increased energy and, and mental clarity. I feel much less tired. If I've actually, I've, I've, I've had times where I've increased the protein, I would feel uh, much more lethargic and all my blood work would actually, uh, get worse with the higher protein ratios. And then you would always keep your carbohydrates below 10 then? Yeah, so my, my carbohydrates, I pretty much have a hard ceiling at about 20 grams of total carbs a day. Okay. Sometimes I'll go up to, you know, 30, but mostly when I do that, it's, it's like all from insoluble fiber or something. But yeah, pretty much uh, less than 20 grams a day. So I'm pretty high fat for sure. But interestingly enough, like I, I test my blood uh, every month, and the higher my fat ratio, the, 
the better my cholesterol scores and, and the more uh, improvement I see there. Yeah. Uh, and, and as for your, your, your activity level, is it strictly weight training or is there cardio involved into your program? I do, I do cardio. I do a lot more cardio when I'm prepping for a competition. Uh, right now it's just kind of a maintenance level of, you know, couple times a month really not very much at all um but but the weight training that i do is is fairly uh pretty pretty intense i, I superset most of my lifts so it's it's a pretty high uh, fast-paced training environment mm-hmm. and that kind of makes sense with your your uh, hit response right yeah yeah like, it, it's not it's not uh, quite hit but it's definitely i mean i don't really have an active rest set i mean it's pretty much going all the time yeah right yeah yeah i, I, I seem to respond pretty well to that um, what about the, uh, the lactose sensitivity? I, I definitely want to dive into that because dairy is a pretty controversial topic. You hear some people, I, I've heard that, that everybody has, you know, some form or fashion of dairy uh, sensitivity. It just might not be, you know, noticeable enough to, to, you know, warrant, uh, removing dairy from the diet, but it's not really a, an optimal, uh, nutrient, I wouldn't think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, this is a unique one. So once when we're all born, we're all pretty much tolerant to lactose because we need to get those nutrients from your mother's milk. And as we kind of age, um, everyone eventually becomes lactose uh, intolerant as we get older. So you kind of start to see this happen as people kind of hit like 40 or 50 and they start noticing um, some negative effects from consuming lactose or any dairy products. But there is the one single gene that's responsible for um, the metabolism of lactose. Some people have a variant in there where from a younger age, they actually are lactose intolerant, as opposed to most people who can kind of still remain lactose tolerant, so they can still can consume dairy without seeing too many negative effects. And that's kind of what this is looking at here. So some people from an earlier age, they're lactose intolerant as opposed to most people who it might take them a few few years to become lactose intolerant, like maybe in their 40s or something like that. But it really varies depending on how much dairy you actually consume and those food intolerances that you can yeah. kind of get from that. Yeah, Cole, Cole kind of hit it right on the head. There's really just an enzyme that our body produces that breaks down lactose, go dormant as we get older, as we age. And, you know, eventually everyone will eventually just become somewhat in, 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 to intolerant to, to lactose. So, like, for me, I don't, I don't notice any, any negative, you know, signs when I have dairy. I, I don't have a ton of dairy, but, I mean, I have heavy cream in my coffee. I have butter. I have, uh, you know, cheeses. Um, would I, like, would you think I would benefit from just removing dairy for a month? I mean, you think I would be able to notice a, a change? So um, based on your genetics, it's saying that you're, you're not sensitive to lactose. So that means that you're, you're pretty tolerant to it. So um, in terms of your genetics, I mean, we would probably say if you're not feeling any negative effects from consuming it right now, it's probably not, not um, necessary to cut it completely out of your diet. But if it's something that you want to try out, I mean, obviously trial and error can definitely work for something like that. But what we recommend is you know, there's no necessarily need to do an intervention here and kind of cut it out of your diet based on your genetics. Yeah. Okay, good, because I, I like cheese. So <laughs> so for, for someone like you, I guess the litmus test would be, like, how do you feel after you eat dairy? Do you feel bloated? Do you feel sick? Do you feel nauseous? Uh, do you feel nauseous? Uh, and then some people, like, you're obviously tolerating it because you're eating it. Now, whether, you know, that you think it might 
be hindering performance in other mechanisms. That's that's a you know that's what Cole was mentioning. That might be an A/B test for you personally uh, to to look at. And there, there'd probably be a lag time. Like if I was to cut dairy, my body probably wouldn't equalize to not having dairy for a couple of weeks. I would imagine so. It would be a pretty minuscule difference. I have to kind of really really pay attention to notice a change. But it'd be it'd be interesting to see if if there was a change. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we have some people that we work with who. You say, well, they, they have um, a high sensitivity to lactose and they cut it out of their diet within a few weeks. They're just like, wow, like, yeah. I noticed the effects big time from cutting dairy out of my diet, like easier time cutting weight, just more energy. Um, some, some of these people have acne issues and it kind of eliminates that. So just a, a few different things yeah. that can be associated with dairy intake. So Robert, one of the other things that's interesting for your listeners too is understanding how much lactose is actually in some individual items. So if you look at something like cream cheese, there's almost, you know, minuscule amounts of lactose in cream cheese um, versus something like ice cream, right? So a lot of the times people don't even realize how much lactose is in, in these individual foods. And I think that's one thing that the portal does a really good job when you get your results. It'll give you a baseline saying, okay, listen, a Starbucks has this much amount of caffeine versus a Red Bull versus a five-hour energy drink. Uh, you know, you get a baseline to understand, okay, espresso is not really that bad, but uh, and, and, uh, versus like a, a Starbucks coffee, regular slow drip. We have Tim Hortons here in Canada, and that has like some pretty high caffeine content. Don't know if you guys have Tim Hortons down there, but. No, I don't think we do, uh, but I've heard of him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Tim Hortons is like, it's like liquid gold for us. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's what I, need. I need to get some of that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at the, uh, like, like the, the lactose one, for instance, and you've got, I like how you have, you know, a breakdown, you know, 2% milk, frozen yogurt, ice cream, soy yogurt, hard cheese. It kind of just shows the different amount of, uh, you know, lactose grams in there, which is which is useful for sure. Hard cheese is less than one gram, so that's what people should be moving towards. You mentioned that you, you your diet consisted of hard cheese, and some people just like it. Some people have an affinity for it and like it, so you know, understanding is that that might not be what is causing the lactose. Like if you had cheese and ice cream on the same day and you say, okay, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, the hard cheese has to go. Maybe it doesn't have to go if we have a better understanding of where the the, the source of the, lac, the, the lactose is coming from. Yeah, very good point. And, and butter, butter doesn't have very much either, right? Those were your two main main sources, right, that you you mentioned was yeah. butter and cream, yeah. I, I do take heavy cream, but... Uh, yeah. So I probably should limit that a little bit, but but milk, for instance, a lot of people drink a ton of milk, and that's highest on the list. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, all right, so let's let's go to vitamins here. So B vitamin response. I'm 58 out of 100. What does that indicate for me? That that's pretty much baseline. It means slightly elevated. So response in this case means um, you should be taking a bit more B vitamins, just because you can help lower your homocysteine levels. So Basically, when you take B vitamins, it helps lower your homocysteine levels. There's uh, multiple reasons why you want lower homocysteine levels. You can look at the research online. But by supplementing with B vitamins, you can lower your homocysteine levels. And certain genetic variants allow us to lower our homocysteine levels a bit more through vitamin B supplementation. So um, you have a 60 out of 100, so slightly above average. So maybe consider um, taking some B vitamin supplementations. Do you currently supplement with any vitamins, Robert? I take a, I don't know if you'll have them in Canada, but have you ever heard of Zip Fizz? No, no, n- never heard of that. 
it's, it's basically just like a little plastic tube. It's a it's got a bunch of vitamins and minerals in it. You just pour it into your water. But I, I drink it because it's got 950 milligrams of potassium, uh, so about the same as a whole avocado. So that's what I do to you know regulate my electrolytes. But there are some that have you know a lot of vitamin vitamins uh, B12 and B6 in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That, that, that's, that's what our score is looking yeah. at, the B6 and the B12. So, so you're actually above you're actually above average. For, for all our numeric scores, Robert, just to give the listeners a baseline, 50 would be average, and obviously above 50 is above average, below 50 would be below average. And let's say the score was something in the range of 30 to 40. Uh, it would just mean that these, these individuals who would score lower might want to consider uh, elevated levels of supplementation, or obviously the primary source would be to get it naturally, but if you can't, they would be a high candidate for supplementation. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense for sure. It's especially with like the, you know, the vitamins and minerals. It's it's people don't often feel the difference from that on you know initially until they try something with it. Especially if their genetics yep. indicate that it'd be beneficial for them. Yeah, and right now standard of care, at least in Canada, is they just say okay, take a multivitamin. And a multivitamin might check off all of this, but you might not be deficient in a mineral that the multivitamin covers off. But we just do a blanket statement just so we can be sure. But you know, you might be over supplementing in, in an area. So having this type of information, personalized information, allows people to make that decision for themselves now. Absolutely. And like with multivitamins, I mean, shoot, with most multivitamins, you get a, a lot of what you don't need and little of what you do need. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what about the omega threes? I'm always interested to learn about you know like the fish oils and whatnot. Yep. Yeah. So uh, the omega threes, it seems like you're you're at average baseline. So it's kind of the same as the as the B vitamins as well. So um, you have more of a response to omega three uh, fatty acid supplementation. You have baseline. So pretty much the same response as anyone else. Someone with the elevated response means that. Um, they would get more effects from uh, supplementing with omegas. And um, the, some of the good effects of supplementing with omega-3 is obviously like brain cognition and a few other things for um, just maintaining overall health, right? Right. You, you supplement with fish oil right now? Uh, I, don't, I don't have a fish oil supplement, but I, I do eat a lot of uh, canned sardines and olive oil. Nice. Yeah, so th- those are pro- probably really high in omega-3s, eh? Just yeah. don't be those into the gym. <laughs> oh yeah every time i open one of those up i get called out for it yeah you're not gonna make too many friends in the gym. <laughs> yeah no i don't know how i've done in the south but no it's the same all over it's better than the cans of tuna though cans of tuna is hard that's, that's the worst yeah, yeah for sure yeah. <laughs> uh so so vitamin d i scored 74 out of 100 um that probably kind of goes hand in hand with my my bone structure being denser right yeah yeah for sure so yeah, I, multiple studies have shown that there is a pretty high correlation between um, the amount of uh, vitamin D that you're intaking and your bone health overall. So that definitely does make sense with your with your bone health uh, risk and the vitamin D response you got here, 74 out of 100. So this is an interesting one, Robert, because vitamin D, you know, we look at it in Canada, most of the doctors just say, you know, your country's not close enough to the equator, so you should supplement with vitamin D, and they don't even they don't even consider this. Uh, so this is actually uh, an interesting score because this is what, what I was telling you about, just a generalized statement that we would use rather than a more personalized uh, statement. So what uh, 
there's been a lot of science coming out recently about like the recommended dosage of, of vitamin D. Do y'all have any take on that? Yeah, so um, I believe Stat Statistics Canada said that about 70% of um, Canadians are deficient in vitamin D, and I believe they define deficiency as anything below 30 uh, nanomoles per liter. So um, right now we're kind of considering recommending um, ranges for vitamins that we can recommend to people like actual set numbers so they can know that they're getting the most amount and what's kind of good with their genetics. So um, right now we're just kind of recommending, okay, you should be taking more or you don't really have to worry about taking uh, the supplements as much as others. But what we really want to do is kind of pinpoint it down to an exact number of like, like nanograms uh, of, of, or milligrams of that particular supplement that you should be taking per day or like how much how much vitamin D that you really need, an exact number. But um, as of right now, we, we just kind of provide um, a basic statement saying, you know, you should be kind of supplementing or you don't really have to worry about it as much as other people. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I'm taking like one 5,000 IU pill a day, so I should be should be good on the vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. So we got one more, one more grouping here, environmental uh, anxiety bitter taste perception and morningness um so i scored right middle of the road with the anxiety so i'm not not too anxious i guess no yeah this one so anxiety would be kind of like how you would respond to environmental stimulus if you got stuck in traffic and you had to be at to the in-laws for dinner in 15 minutes you know how do you react to these types of scenarios um some people just you know unfazed it's part of life move on uh, deal with it, and then other people just, you know, this is this is based on how they would feel, uh, and it would create a sor- source of stress in their life. So kind of like looking at the parents and parents and sympathetic nervous system response. Uh, exactly. Yes. Gotcha. And then uh, food taste uh, for bitter here, bitterness here. Um, so I scored a low on that. So would low indicate that I, I don't perceive bitterness, or would it be the other way around? Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting one. So um, for bitter taste perception, it's really not overall bitter taste. It's really um, certain compounds in certain foods. So um, there's this one genetic variant we look at for this one. People with this genetic variant, um, they can taste certain compounds super bitter. So for instance, one of these foods that contains this compound is cilantro. So people that eat cilantro, if they have the genetic variant making them uh, taste bitter, they can't really stand cilantro, as opposed to most people that don't have this variant. Um, they can eat cilantro and don't really taste it as bitter as others. So it's just kind of a unique one there. Um, it's saying that you don't have a bitter taste perception, so um, you re- really wouldn't find um, these compounds super bitter. Like when I'm talking bitter, I mean it's pretty much intolerable from what these people say. They can't really, they don't enjoy eating it pretty much. So it's really only certain foods that we're looking at here. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Um... On a separate note, that that that's the first variance in in our locale with our our, our speaking here in Arkansas. We call it cilantro. <laughs> oh. <laughs> cilantro. <laughs> cilantro, cilantro, potato, potato. Though, right? There you go. <laughs> um, all right. So last one here, the uh, morningness factor, um, and I scored seventy nine out of hundred there. So that would indicate that I'm I'm a pretty early riser, right? Yep, yeah, absolutely. So um, what this is looking at are multiple genes that kind of uh, regulate what's known as our circadian rhythm or internal clock. So for instance, one of the genes we're looking at is the, is the PER2 gene. 
Um, this gene is the main regulator of your circadian rhythm, which affects your locomotor uh, activity, metabolism, and uh, behavior. So um, variants in this gene are associated with reduced morningness. And we're looking at a few other genes here that kind of um, influence like your photoreceptors in your eyes and a few other things that kind of regulate um, your biological clock. So um, some people, um, believe it or not, it's really genetically determined what time they kind of prefer to wake up at during the morning. And it seems like you're more of a morning person. So if someone can't really, if someone's a morning person genetically and they can't really wake up um, that early in the morning, I mean, it's really a lifestyle thing that they kind of have to manage, but maybe they should try maybe adjusting their life so or their life schedule so they can kind of try to wake up earlier in the morning. Yeah, Robert, if I threw it out to you, what would you prefer to work out in the morning or the evening? I prefer to work out in the morning. I feel like my joints are a little bit more loosened up in the evening, but I prefer training in the morning. Yeah. 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 So, so that, that makes sense too. I mean, I, I'm a morning person as well, according to my genetics and I find I just have more energy when I just get it done first thing in the morning and I'm just more alert. It's kind of like peak alertness kind of thing. So yeah, well, your score was uh, 79 out of a hundred Robert. So maybe we should change from keto savage to the morning savage. <laughs> is that, is that higher than most? Yeah. 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 Huh, interesting. What out of curiosity, what what do y'all uh like what sleep sleep fascinates me because it's so different for everybody, but what what is y'all's like ideal uh window of, of sleep? Like how many hours is y'all's optimal window? So I, I typically like get like six hours right now just because we're we're working a lot these days. But ideally since I'm working out every day, I mean a good solid eight hours would be good for me. This, is, this isn't really based on any science, just more like a, like a personal preference. Eight hours would probably be good for me in an ideal yeah. situation. So when we look at sleep, there's lots of research around like what's the quality of sleep too. Uh, and, you know, now with the power of like these, the wearables, they can tell you uh, throughout, the, throughout your sleep how many hours you were in a deep sleep, a moderate sleep, versus you know you were just not 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 sleeping at all so you know i guess there's there would be a fine ratio in that i haven't seen too much research about what's the ideal number but uh uh for me personally i know anything less than seven you don't want to be in the room with me by four o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> really i get pretty damn cranky yeah it's and, interesting like I, my mind's about six if i get much more than six then i start to feel more lethargic there's like a yeah. point of diminishing returns there for me oh yeah 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 so in your six hours though those would probably be high quality sleep hours high quality sleep it's not interrupted sleep or something like that and usually you know bmi and all these other health factors help in that equation too it's not so much just one uh, metric it's probably going to be a combination of, of many many different uh, activities yeah yes and for I, sure down the road as more research gets out there about sleep and a few of these other interesting kind of traits i mean potentially we could be running all our genetic studies based off of these things so seeing how long people stay in their REM states of sleep because if you're if you're functioning fine off of six and you feel lethargic after that like it's just like I'm kind of predicting here, maybe you have like longer REM cycles or deeper REM cycles when you're sleeping. And maybe that varies between people based on their genetics. So um, we've actually done a little bit of research on this. There's a super rare uh, genetic variant out there. It's called, kind of, they call it the super sleeper gene. So it's uh, it's DC, DEC2 is the name of the gene. And people with a variant in this gene 
can actually function off of four hours of sleep and be completely fine. Like they're 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 completely restored after the day for any more than four hours, kind of like what you were saying, any more than six, and they just don't feel proper. So that's a super rare genetic variant. Yeah. People with this are called the super sleepers. Yeah, Robert. So we don't actually test for that gene, but I could confidently say that I don't have it. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be curious to see because like, I, I pulled an all-nighter last night. I didn't slept in 36 hours. And I feel pretty good. Oh, it's wow. kind of like it's like a myostatin gene too. Yeah. Right? Myostatin gene. Uh, uh, looking at your picture, you might qualify for it, but I definitely might. You know? <laughs> I don't have the myostatin gene. That's for sure. Yeah. It, yeah, it, it is very interesting, and, and so many things are like you know trying to tie it back into nutrition. Like um, you know, with me doing so much experimentation with the different macronutrient ratios, like when I had my higher protein month, you know, I, I was much much more tired. And then literally the day after I increased it to you know a higher fat ratio, I felt you know just so much more lively. I woke up without an alarm. Like it was just night and day difference, and that was just simply from you know a, a change in nutrition. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel, I feel like that's kind of what more people need to do is kind of just like like try out new different ways of eating, you know, new macronutrient ratios and kind of find what's right for them because it really comes back to that point where not everyone is the same. We're all unique. We all respond to these things uniquely. So you really got to determine what your ideal macronutrient ratio is, what's your ideal training regime, and that's kind of what we're trying to provide to the clients of Gene Blueprint, yep. just kind of give them a blueprint of what – might work best for them based on their genetics for sure and then you can never discount the fact that you cannot you know we always have to consider out what the individual's goals and their lifestyle is too because that that is that is paramount to 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 their success if you know if to 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 achieve a certain uh, body fat percentage you're going to have to make certain sacrifices with your life to make that happen and you know, it doesn't matter what your genetic profile is. Like I said, you could have the best genes in the entire world, score perfect across the board. Doesn't happen, but let's just hypothetically say it did. But if you just neglected your fitness and your nutrition, you're not going to, you, you won't get the nickname Keto Savage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, all, it's all symbiotic in nature. Everything plays a part of the game. You can't just look at one as a standalone. Yep. Very good. Well, well gentlemen, what... Uh, before we leave here, do y'all have, I mean, we're all kind of biohackers here and self-experimentation is our, our hobby. Has there been anything that, that y'all have done, you know, just throughout your different experiments in life that would be beneficial to know uh, that I could probably glean from or any of the audience could? Uh, Putting I mean, you on the spot here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just off the top of my head, I mean, I've been working with the Gene Blueprint for about a year now and kind of realizing my response to these things like for for me the carbohydrate tolerance i have a really low carbohydrate tolerance and i didn't really i always ate a lot of carbohydrates because you kind of think okay increase your amount of carbohydrates and you're gonna get bigger i'm trying to trying to bulk up you know get more muscular but i found by reducing my amount of carbohydrates after learning that i had a low tolerance i'm still increasing muscle but i'm not putting on as much fat that's just from my personal experience and i've kind of upped my fat intake and it's kind of um, I'm, I'm really happy with the way my progress has been, just kind of incorporating the results from this test here. That's just kind of one example off the top of my head. Yeah. And, and what are your macros at now, Cole? Uh, so right now I'm probably at 30% uh, carbohydrates, maybe about like 30% protein and the rest fat. So 
that would be like 40% fat. I'm not, not really tracking too much. I just kind of have an overall idea of it, but I know my fat intake, I'm eating like two avocados a day. I'm really trying to just increase that, putting the coconut oil in my coffee, doing the bulletproof thing. Um, yeah, so I'm just kind of, kind of trying out those new things, but, um, how, how about you? Um, what are you kind of doing for, uh, for new, um, biohacking methods? Me, me, I'm, I'm right, right, right now I'm doing like a three month hypertrophy experiment where I'm basically trying to manipulate the, the ratios to see, you know, what ratio of proteins and fats lends itself to the most muscle gain, the least, uh, you know, fat gain from like a, a off season bodybuilding perspective to kind of see what would be optimal, you know, cause I spent about two years in the off season in between competitions as a natural competitor. So I need to optimize that time to the best of my ability. So that's kind of. I'm just playing with the ratios right now to figure out what the best uh, protocol would be going forward. Nice, nice. I know, Robert, from my own personal experience, <clears throat> I mean, if you're the keto savage, I would have been the carb savage. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a European family where we would eat bread with pasta. Mm-hmm. That's, that would be a typical diet. So I decided that I was going to try this low-carb thing and put myself on steady-state cardio. And I was – got myself under 10% body fat, which was for me, I mean, I, I used to play uh, university university soccer and I was in better shape after I stopped playing soccer than when I was playing soccer because of this. It worked it worked magic for me, but I, I mean, selfishly, I, I, I like carbohydrates, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm uh, I, I leaned more towards being a carb savage again. Oh, gentlemen, sounds like both of y'all would just like hit a whole nother level of optimization if you just jumped off the deep end and went keto full force. <laughs> Might have to try it. Might have to I try don't it. think these guys would want to work with me. I'd be miserable. You'd, you'd, you'd be miserable for like a week, but then after that, man, it's, it's like the movie Limitless. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's like a, you just take the drug and it's just, you know, limitless. <laughs> All right. I'm always down. I'm down to try anything. That's one thing. So I think that like kind of Cole was saying, we do a lot of when you're you're a biohacker, it's a lot of A-B testing to figure out what what works and what doesn't work for you. And then you marry it with your goals in in your lifestyle and you figure out, okay, if you want to do this, this is the path of least resistance to get to where you have to go. So like, uh, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Well, I'll be checking in in about a month, and we'll see how many carbs you're taking in. If you're having bread and pasta, then I'll have something to say. <laughs> All right. I'll send you the before and after. <laughs> there you go. Well, gentlemen, where can people go to find out more about you? Sorry, what was that? Where I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, where can people go to find out more about what, what you're doing with the genetics? Uh, you can visit us at our website, uh, geneblueprint.com. Uh, we have an interesting blog. We like to talk about just interesting topics about where the market's going genetics certain outputs and whatnot but uh and then you can read about all our bios on our on our website yeah we got instagram too gene blueprint on the instagram and uh if any of your listeners wanted to uh purchase a test um they can use the promo code savage 50 receive 50 dollars off uh off a test so it's uh, savage 50 all capitals and uh, yeah, you can purchase a test on Gene Blueprint if anyone is interested in finding out how they respond on a genetic level to uh, their fitness and nutrition. Yeah, and if you have any interested listeners too, Robert, I'm 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 active. Uh, send me an email. It's just Paul at GeneBlueprint.com. We love to engage with uh, in- interested and enthusiastic, like-minded individuals. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the name of the game. You know, everybody's just kind of trying to be the best they can be. So to interact with people doing the same, it just makes it that much more fun. 
for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We love we love interacting with with people who are on the same kind of journey of optimizing their health. So if you guys want to shoot us an email, shoot us a couple questions, and we'd be happy to answer them. Just one more question here with uh, that that kind of brought up. What uh, have y'all noticed a trend like an upward trend in in people becoming more like biohacker, uh, you know, minded, like getting these these gene blueprint tests and trying to just optimize. Yeah, so uh, we see a lot of uptick on the nutrition side. Uh, on the nutrition side, uh, moving away from there, there's so many yo-yo dieters, and if you look at the numbers, like 85 percent of people, you know, abandon their nutrition program after three months uh, just because the trial and error. We're finding that that is the sweet spot where people really want to understand what the ideal, pers- what their personalized mac- macros is. Um, and then on top of that, the accessibility and the availability of having this information at your fingertips, that uh, it, is, it is a massively growing opportunity in, in, a, in a market uh, with genetics. Um, where we're really fortunate is we always like to say not all genetic scores are created equally. And that's where we really, uh, at the beginning of the, the podcast, we talked about the four pillars that really allow us to make the most accurate genetic prediction scores. So we're going to continue to evolve, continue to develop, continue to add new scores, uh, talk to our customers, see what they want, and make sure that the science marries what the, what the need and the demand is and uh, keep, keep this uh, forward momentum going. Right, that's awesome. I'm excited for you. People, people in this space, in this niche, like we're, all, we're all data nerds. Like we, just, we just love the data. So the more data, yep. the better. Cool. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I guess uh, we'll be in touch for sure going forward. And uh, definitely let me know if you have any questions on my end. And I'll be sure and link to to all your pages there on the show notes. Sounds good. All right, gentlemen. Take care. Thank you.